to say that this idea may seem attractive to some people for some reasons, but that it was fundamentally nothing more than an illusion. It can't be done. It hadn't been done in the paper, even though it was presented as if it had been done. And we came back and said, it wasn't done. It can't be done. And if it could, it would be too dangerous to consider. And when people say that they have done this kind of work, they've essentially always committed one basic experimental computer science sin. Welcome to Ethics at Work, a podcast where educators at Notre Dame discuss questions of meaning, purpose, and value in the context of our working life. I'm Walter Shire. I'm Megan Levis. And I'm Paul Blaschko. Today, we're joined by Dr. Kevin Boyer, the Shubmel Prine Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Notre Dame. Kevin's research is in the areas of computer vision and human biometrics with an emphasis on practical applications. His work has been foundational to the recent renaissance in artificial intelligence. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for the chance to be with you today. So, Kevin, in the 1990s, you edited a book on computer ethics. To get us started, can you tell us a little bit about the field of computer ethics then versus now? What's changed? That's somewhat of a difficult question. By the way, that book is old now and out of date. Don't anybody go look for it. In the sense of the list of chapter titles, that alone might seem like it's not gone out of date. But the the incidents that we use to illustrate and discuss the various topics have certainly migrated over time. And if we think of the topic of government regulation of encryption, uh, once upon a time, there was something called the clipper chip, which is probably totally unfamiliar to anybody, even close to the age of our current students. But that was something that you would have spent serious time on as a particular example of government regulation of encryption and how that affects privacy. Today, we don't think of that so much, but encryption is still in important as a technology and maybe in the sense of, of cryptocurrencies is even more important. Can you say a little bit more about some of the changes that have occurred since the book was published, specifically thinking about the economic changes that have occurred over time with technology? I can remember in the past, we would sometimes talk about how chip production in the U.S., that is computer chip production in the U.S. in factories in California, affected the environment in terms of water quality and the use of water and things like that. I think that concern, to some degree, faded from public view, at least in the U.S., and a lot of our chip manufacturing has been transferred offshore, and so Taiwan, South Korea are major places for chip manufacturing. Just in the last week, I saw a headline that TSMC, the main semiconductor manufacturing company in Taiwan, is putting its first production plant in the U.S., right? So that's money coming back and part of the industry coming back to the U.S. And I'm guessing that it's largely geopolitical, that the time of Taiwan being as independent as it is in recent memory from mainland China may be limited and chip production may all have to come back from Taiwan to the U.S. Yeah, it's interesting to see this change over time um, and how it's entangled, too, with some of these security concerns, right? Going back to, um, you know, specialized chips, especially with cryptographic components, right? There's huge concern about the manufacturing overseas, right? Bringing that back, I think, is going to be a big game changer. So we'll have to see how that unfolds in the future. 
yeah, I, I expect to see more chip production facilities created in the U.S. over the next few years that 10 years ago, people would have thought would never happen again. I'm going to jump in here with a little bit of a follow-up question based off of that before we get into the next question. Can you tell us a little bit more about just the breadth of topics that you cover in your book? Certainly. You know, privacy is one of the things that we always cover. And that's gone from simply meaning matching up records in different systems with your social security number to a privacy invasion by government. And then the current years, we think about invasion of privacy in the sense of surveillance capitalism as a business model by large corporations, how much they know about you. Intellectual property concerns are are another consistent issue. Work-life balance concerns and how people are treated in a high-tech industry is another continuing concern. The use of computer products and warfare is sometimes a concern that comes up in this sort of course. The idea of artificial intelligence, how much it should be treated as as an entity in and of itself, and what role it has in decision-making and systems that involve humans is another issue. All of these issues sort of exist over time with different examples used to illustrate them over time. Any given instance of the course is partly a reflection of the professor's concerns or interests and society's ranking of what is the most important to society at the current time. This is, yeah, this is great and really interesting. One of the things that I'm curious about is how this shows up in the classroom. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the courses that you teach, sort of how it relates to the things that you're talking about now, and what it is that you're really having students think about and do in those classes. This is a difficult subject to teach for a professor who is trained in a professional in computer science and engineering. There isn't a lot of room for programming exercises. There isn't a lot of room for mathematical analysis, though a little bit of math to understand things is good. And and you talk about how software is implemented to do some of these things, but it's more getting students to be aware of the big picture and to digest different concerns and be able to put them into a framework and articulate them. So we typically ask students to write papers and make presentations primarily in this class. That's the sort of content of, of assignments. And we might divide them into groups and ask them to make presentations on different elements of surveillance capitalism or something like that so that we can then put it together across the whole class. One group might be assigned to be able to explain to the class what a web beacon or a Facebook pixel is. This is the technical mechanism in terms of the code for how Meta keeps track of all of the things that you do online or Google for that matter. And then another group might be asked to explain what the ocean psychographic model is, the O-C-E-A-N, openness, conscientiousness. It's the letters stand for dimensions of personality. In the surveillance capitalism business model, each of us has an ocean model of our psychographics that's used by the companies that sell advertising spots focused on us to advertisers. And we might ask another team of students to to sort of track where the revenue comes from in companies like Google and Meta. So they realize that, you know, 97, 98% of Meta's revenue is from advertising dollars. That is their business. It's not connecting you with your friends around the world. 
are there sort of like new topics that are coming up in your class that weren't covered in the book that you wrote in the 90s? The most prominent topic that I could suggest that exists now that didn't exist in the 90s or even in the early to middle 2000s that is just fundamentally important and widely under-recognized, much less understood, is called surveillance capitalism. And we, we may not like the term. It was coined by a, a Harvard professor. Everyone sort of knows that you see advertisements when you use these social media platforms. What we don't recognize is how and how much the advertisements you see are tailored to your psychological hot buttons and weaknesses. Let's imagine that I pretended to be your friend and I followed you around and I took notes on everything you looked at in the store, what you bought, what you put back on the shelves, how much you spent. And I did this continuously. And then you noticed that I was negotiating with someone else about telling them what would be a great thing to present to you for you to buy. Would you think that was weird of me? Well, that's essentially what these platforms are doing. Everywhere you go online, Google and or Facebook is getting information about what you did on every site, what you bought, what you put in the cart, what you left in the cart, how much you spent, and tracked over time. So if there's a monthly or weekly or daily or annual rhythm or trend in what you do, it's known to the data mining algorithms and the opportunities to present an advertisement to you to change your behavior. And I use change your behavior intentionally. It might be to buy something. It might be to vote for a certain candidate. It might be to join a certain organization. There are opportunities to change your behavior, not only sell products. Those opportunities get auctioned off to advertisers willing to pay for the chance to change something about you, and you really don't see it happening because the model that's been created, the model of you, the ocean model, the psychographics model that talks about your measure of your openness, which is a personality trait, your conscientiousness, your agreeableness, your neuroticism. So each person has a model of them that they didn't get to create, they don't get to control, somebody else gets to use to present opportunities to them that they will find as irresistible as possible because those opportunities are worth more to the advertisers or the people paying for the chance to change some element of your behavior. So the mixture of some technology, the web beacon or Facebook pixel, or the ability to track you everywhere you go and record what you do online, along with what you like and what you read, which lets someone fill out an ocean model of your psychographics. And the maintenance of this over time is used to leverage you for advertising dollars for these companies. And go look up the percentage of revenue that Facebook and Google get from this type of advertisement. So in our work, our classes and research inform each other. Do your tech ethics classes inform your research at all? Well, one, one crossover between the, my research interests and, and teaching about tech ethics um, that I found particularly interesting and, and resulted in a publication in the last couple of years that's become modestly popular anyway, um, is the idea of criminality from face. There were multiple papers that came up in the research community where people were proposing the idea that they could take a person's face image and predict whether or not the person 
was a criminal or had criminal tendencies. The first couple of these papers that came up did not get published, but then one did manage to get published in a Springer journal. And that sort of provoked a, a group of us to write a response to it, to say that this idea may seem attractive to some people for some reasons, but that it was fundamentally nothing more than an illusion. It can't be done. It hadn't been done in the paper, even though it was presented as if it had been done. And we came back and said, it wasn't done. It can't be done. And if it could, it would be too dangerous to consider. And when people say that they have done this kind of work, where they've taken a set of face images of criminals and non-criminals and developed an algorithm to predict who's a criminal and who isn't, they've essentially always committed one basic experimental computer science sin. They have decided that they want to work with two concepts, in this case, criminal and not criminal, and they've collected images to represent each of the two concepts, but they've collected the images from very different sources. And so all of my images of people I want to label criminal will not get into the fact that that's really hard to do from any sort of a source. And arrest records are not evidence of being a criminal, they're evidence of being arrested, at least in the United States. You get your images of people you want to label criminal from one source and all of your images that you want to label as not criminal from a different source. And you develop an algorithm that you say and maybe believe is predicting criminal and not criminal when really all it's predicting is source A and source B. And it might be as simple as images that have been compressed before and images that have not or images that were acquired color and images that were acquired black and white. And that's all you really learned, but you put the label on it that you were doing something much more important. And you can, you can see this with predicting people's political tendencies, predicting people's sexual orientation. The most dangerous, at least that I've seen, was the idea that you could predict who was a criminal or who was going to be a criminal and who was not. And so we, we bring this up to the class because it can seem attractive when you just read the abstract and look at the headline and have the appearance of experimental work that's been done and numbers that are quoted and try to get them to appreciate what would be good evidence of this. Why is there a flaw in this experimental approach? And what would the dangers be if somehow magically somebody gave you this and it did work and it was 98% accurate? Take the numbers of the U.S. population and tell me how many criminals are going to be certified as innocent with whatever resulting consequences that is and how many innocent people are going to be certified as criminal with those resulting consequences. So that's a long description of a class or two or a class and an assignment of something we might do in this class that is informed, or at least for me, I'm able to do the topic authoritatively because it relates to my research. That's excellent. So you also teach a course on engineering entrepreneurship. I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about what you do in that class. Well, this is a <laughs> rather unusual course. It's not at all unusual for a Department of Computer Science and Engineering to have a required ethics and engineering type course. For a Department of Computer Science and Engineering to have the option for students who are majors in that department to take a course focused on entrepreneurship for the computer science-based technologies is rather unusual. We've had it for about 10 years now. It was suggested by a colleague who was visiting our department from MIT. Eric Grimson was the chancellor at MIT at the time. He said, you know, we do this at MIT. You could do this at Notre Dame. 
for whatever reason, it, it fell to me to be the one to start the course. And so it's a learning experience for me because it's I'm not an entrepreneur by career or by experience. We try to, in this course, cause our students to understand what I'll call traditional Silicon Valley entrepreneurship, how that fits into a what I'll say is a broader picture of Notre Dame and being a force for good in the world. And there are options for how you might choose to be a force for good in the world. You might make a lot of money and donate money. You might make a lot of money and employ a lot of people. My goal is to make sure the students understand what could happen in different scenarios for how they might participate in entrepreneurship. So they will get the standard treatment of entrepreneurship that they would get in a business school. We have a book that we use in the course called The Founder's Dilemmas. It was originally recommended to me by Tim Connors to use in the course. And it has a lot of statistics and it'll talk about venture capital funding. We'll augment it with a little bit so the class will understand angel funding, seed funding, series A, series B, and eventual exits through either being purchased or IPO. And they'll know that that it's mostly being purchased, not going IPO, that that's a less traveled route than, than the company being sold. But then they'll also understand that Everything in entrepreneurship doesn't have to be a Delaware C-Corp. The Delaware C-Corp is the standard form for things that are going to get venture capital. There are things called benefit corporations that exist in most of the states now, where you can charter a corporation that has responsibilities beyond the financial bottom line. There's this concept or phrase called the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profits. The traditional corporation is concerned only with profit. That is its reason to exist. And shareholders can go after officers of the corporation if they don't maximize profit. In a benefit corporation, the corporation needs to report back on its progress on profit and how it's treating the planet and how it's treating people. We have the students understand that there are these different choices. They get to see some companies that are chartered different ways that are still entrepreneurship type efforts. And they get to see guest speakers. The course is heavily driven by guest speakers. I do well less than half of the lecture meetings. And we managed to recruit a large number of Notre Dame alums, Notre Dame community members, and friends of Notre Dame in the broader sense to come back and present different case studies and different viewpoints for the students. Let's take a break. Want to learn more about Ethics at Work? Find us at ethicsatwork.nd.edu. That is ethicsatwork.nd.edu. Welcome back to Ethics at Work. We're talking today with Kevin Boyer, faculty in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Notre Dame. So, Kevin, I want to pick up on the thread where we were talking about entrepreneurship right before the break. And you mentioned that you have a ton of speakers come to your class, come visit for, with a variety of backgrounds. I know one of the things that I've heard from students is that they love the guest lectures that you bring into your class. Who is someone that you were particularly excited to bring to campus this semester? Oh, my. 
this is this is a very dangerous question because I get to choose the guest speakers. I lo- love all the guest speakers, or I wouldn't have invited them in. And it's the result of ten years of contacts being developed. Let me give you some examples that could be considered by by the students maybe the most extreme in some ways. One guest speaker we had this semester is Pat Rakin. He's a former Notre Dame faculty member. He's the founder of a company called Crossroads Solar that's located here in South Bend. They produce solar panels. If you wanted to buy solar panels for your church or your school or your chain of stores or something like that, you could potentially contract through him to get delivery of solar panels. So this is a a second career for Pat. And the way in which it's extreme is that in the ranking of people, planet, and profits, to me, it seems he's clearly decided he wants to change the lives of people by giving them a skill to help change the planet and profits. Well, that's not terribly important in this business model. Crossroads Solar employs only people who are ex-felons. And the presentation by him to the class of that's a ground rule for how I'm going to hire people and run the company And I'm not concerned with how much profit the company makes. I'm concerned with how many people I can give meaningful employment. And maximizing that replaces the idea of maximizing profit. And ask the class, okay, how do you rate the impact of that in the world, the value of that in the world, right? The being a force for good of that in the world. There's differences in scale. He's never going to employ hundreds of thousands of people, or it's hard to see how to grow that to employing, you know, the Google-sized workforce. But for the people that it touches, it is life-changing. And so I think that's when we talk about social entrepreneurship, that's a pegging an extreme example to force the class to think, wow, entrepreneurship includes things like that, as well as all these things that I already knew or included or expected that it would include. Another person that I was lucky enough to have visit and speak this semester is Karakez, who is a co-founder of the Halo app. There are three co-founders, all of whom are Notre Dame undergrads. Eric was invited back because he was a computer science and engineering major. The three Notre Dame grads were out working and decided that they were not entirely happy with the perceived pressure and their spirituality or their, how well their business life supported their desired spirituality. And they decided to create this app called Hallow, which I'm guessing a huge fraction of our audience may already be familiar with. If they're not, it gives you a way to have prayers, music, other material delivered to you, customized for you according to what you would like and delivered to you on your phone. Notre Dame students can get, I might have thought that an app like that would be very hard to launch and grow. I would have been entirely wrong. The three Notre Dame grads who are out there working with this just recently raised a Series B round of funding. So they're going the venture capital route, $40 million, which by the general rules of thumb would imply that the venture capitalists who handed over the $40 million at Series B were valuing the company at $200 million or more. And the cool thing specifically for the class was that Eric was in the first offering of this class when he was a Notre Dame undergraduate. And then he was out working for a while, had the burnout or the desire to have a deeper connection with spirituality and share that. 
the insight to create this app with two other co-founders who are Notre Dame grads. And then he's back in the classroom saying, you know, 10 years ago, I was sitting here. <laughs> and I thought that was just an awful lot of fun. And I really appreciate that he was able to come back and talk about that for the class. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about the startup scene and how this is a compelling alternative career path for students coming out of their undergraduate studies. A couple of dimensions that we try to make sure the students understand about the startup scene. It used to be harder to convince students that startups happen everywhere. There's this impression, oh, startups, well, then I have to move to Silicon Valley. We put up a chart that it says where all the startup dollars are invested in the country, and it's 20-some percent in Silicon Valley. That's high, but that leaves a very large percent going around the rest of the country. We bring in speakers from Chicago. We bring in speakers from South Bend. South Bend has a number of serious startup efforts. Onalytics, I believe, is over 200 employees. That's a startup backed by Tracy Graham, who's a local venture capitalist. Tracy was also a Notre Dame undergraduate and a football player in the past. He's been quite successful, and he has Graham Allen Partners here in town and a suite of startups and Onalytics being the data software and algorithms part of that package of startups. So we make sure the students understand that a place like South Bend is as viable a place as any in general, university towns are viable places to do startups. And then another thing we try to do is show the students examples of not having to be a founder, but being able to participate in and leverage the startup scene for their career. Another speaker that was back this fall is Chaz Jen. And Chaz Jen is currently working with the company called Otter. There's actually lots of companies called Otter out there. So you, you have to make sure you Google the right one. This particular Otter is the one that's helping parents who need childcare connect with other parents who could provide childcare. This is a, another venture capital backed effort. They just got money from Sequoia and Chaz is joining as one of their technical leads. While the company is fairly small, he was previously a technical lead at Cameo, which is a Chicago-based company where if I wanted to send you a birthday greeting and I knew that you were a golfer, I could find golf pros on Cameo who would record my video greeting and I could send it to you for a fee. And so that's a, another example of a startup company. And prior to that, Chaz was the chief technical person with Civis Analytics, which is a data science startup that was in Chicago. To the class, that's a former computer science and engineering undergraduate who has been a serial chief technical person in now three different startup efforts. And he'll talk to them about, well, I'm not really a founder type. I love this chief technical role. And I love the stage of startups where they're about this size, where you get to do different things and learn different things. When it gets to be a big company, whatever that means, it's less fun for him. And he'll explain the stock options and all that to them. And I think that brings reality to the class in realizing I don't have to be a founder. I don't have to have that magical idea. If I bring a really important skill, if I can be a chief technical person, if I can be a chief marketing person, or if you're from Mendoza, if you could be the chief financial person to join a small team or a team later on. Chris Vargas is a, an alum of Notre Dame who's out in Silicon Valley who comes back and makes a similar and sort of a larger picture argument of the stages at which you can join or the ways in which you can join into a startup. 
In talking about introducing students to the different forms of entrepreneurship, I want to take a second to highlight some of the risks. Kevin, we know that entrepreneurship isn't all fun and games. What are some of those risks and how might someone starting a company navigate them? Well, hopefully I don't give the students the idea that entrepreneurship is all fun and games. I think all the people who've done it would say it's all a lot of hard work and it is risky. So the students who go through the class will sort of understand Tim Connor's pivot north kind of model of traditional Silicon Valley entrepreneurship, which roughly summarized might be I invest in 12 companies at the very early stage. And when I invest in the 12 companies, I believe sincerely that every one of them has the chance to be worth 10 times or more whatever I invest in the company over the time that I invest. But 18 months later, things have changed and you reassess and you re-rank your ideas based on experience, which ones are really there and, and half of them sort of go away. And another 18 months, you look at the half that remained into the first 18 months and sort of re-rank and reassess and you're down now to two or three out of 12 that you back as hard as you can to try to build the final result of the initial venture portfolio of companies that's going to become that newsworthy, noteworthy, investment-worthy thing for the future. And so the students know right away. As a founder, when I first get seed funding, I'm on a path that one in six might end up in a definition of success and the others will need to try again. So that's part of the riskiness of the venture capital-backed investment. They'll also understand pretty concretely how the percentage of ownership of the founders changes from seed funding to Series A to Series B and when the founders typically are no longer the majority control of the company and what kind of percentage to expect down the road. So they go into this with their eyes open. And we do have, as I mentioned, Eric Carrick has graduates who are founding companies which through today appear quite successful. And we have other students who have taken the course in the past, who've contacted me and discussed ideas that they're in the middle of launching right now. Emily and Michaela have an app called the Sloan app. I think it's sloanapp.com where they're trying to bring together stylists and clients in a social platform. I was going to attend some social event, some party, and I just knew that I don't have the clothes I want to wear. I could find somebody to give me a set of recommendations that would be good for me through their app. They're at the very, very early stage. They're doing their earliest minimum viable product. What does the implementation look like? Can I actually get people to sign up as clients, people to sign up as stylists and establish that there is some sort of potential revenue flow there? As we're wrapping up today, as you're telling us all about the different courses that you teach, particularly as we think about kind of entrepreneurships, do you have any particular takeaways that you hope that your students are left with at the end of the semester with your class? We're coming up on the last class meeting for this semester, and there are two or three or four questions I try to come back to and revisit at the last class meeting to sort of make sure that the class got the messages out of the semester that I was hoping they would get. And so one question that I'll ask them in some form is, tell me some examples of social entrepreneurship that you saw this semester, and tell me how you would rank them in terms of impact on people, planet, and profit. I might also say, okay, tell me about 
companies you talked about this semester that are profit oriented and tell me which ones you think are going to be most successful and why you think they're going to be most successful. Now, typically we, we do this sort of exercise in a, everybody do this individually for 10 minutes, form yourselves in small groups and then produce a small group consensus. And there's a certain amount of learning that goes on in producing the small group consensus because the people don't have the same rankings or ratings and don't have the same reasons. And then somebody from each question, some group from each question, be able to share their responses with the class as a whole. We might also ask them, several people who do investment in startups, come back and talk to the class. Uh, Joe Seifer, who's a former high-level person at Booz Allen, is now retired, Notre Dame College of Engineering grad, does angel investing. And he came back and talked to the class. Well, you know, when you come to me looking for your angel investment, here's the five criteria in my mind that I'm going to be running down thinking about you. And I thought this was a spectacular piece of advice for the students to hear from somebody who actually makes investments, how they evaluate the ideas that are brought to them. But we can also then ask the students to take those criteria and evaluate one of the other companies you saw and talked about this semester in terms of those criteria and tell me whether or not it would lead you to make an investment in that company if you were going to. We try to draw connections across the material covered in the semester. We try to emphasize both the plain commercial and the social entrepreneurship angle and there's one slide where we have the scripture verse that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil that we used in the very first class of the semester. We might repeat again in the last class of the semester. As we wrap up our podcast today, do you have a book, a podcast, or another resource that you're particularly excited about? If listeners want to follow up on some of the topics that you've been talking about, where should they go next? Let me make a couple of recommendations, some which are sort of required for the students this semester because they're the subject of exercises and one which might be fun because it would be thought provoking and has sometimes been the subject of an extra credit assignment in the class. I think our traditional things that I actually used this semester as the basis for some assignments in the class, the students did a couple of papers connecting material in a book called The Founder's Dilemmas with case studies covered in the class. It's the book that sort of provides a standard view of the venture capital experience and venture capital-backed companies, and it's got lots of statistics, and it's good for the students to have as context. Then we also built a series of small assignments around speakers that in the How I Built This podcast series that plays on NPR. We selected out particular speakers that represent computer-based companies and that had something novel about them, helped us draw the big picture of the class. Kickstarter was example covered in an assignment like that. And then the students realized that Hallow had used Kickstarter at one point early on. So we were able to make connections around different ideas. I think the How I Built This series is, is a high quality podcast series. And so I don't mind having students listen to that and then build some reaction between that and material covered in the class. And then the one that's perhaps a little more edgy, there's a book called Winners Take All by journalist Anand Girid Haradas that I have sometimes built an extra credit assignment around when I teach the class. And I say it's a, a little bit edgy because the idea of winners take all, the title of the book, is that 
people who have become fabulously wealthy through venture capital means tend to sometimes then go into charity work, trying to solve the world's problems using the hammer they became very familiar with in the venture capital world. And his point is to challenge whether or not the standard venture capitalist tools are sufficient to solve the world's biggest problems, the world's most important problems, and his ideas of what's the biggest and what's the most important. And so that's really stretching because it's sort of opposing almost rather than augmenting and broadening some of the ideas that we talk about in the course. I mean, our our function here is to educate and to cause people to have really large ideas and see things in the largest possible way. And so I, I don't feel bad about it. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us today. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on the Ethics at Work podcast. On behalf of Megan, Paul, and myself, I hope you enjoyed the episode and will visit ethicsatwork.nd.edu to learn even more about the complex relationship between work and flourishing. <laughs>